Welcome to episode three of the Florida Divorce and Family Law Questions podcast. Got a couple good questions for you today, but first let's go over some of the quick ground rules. Um, I'm not answering questions from actual clients here today. These are just people who need a quick answer to general questions. Um, So this isn't really legal advice. Please don't take it as legal advice. Nothing can really substitute for um, an attorney, a local attorney, someone in your community who can hear the whole story, ask various questions of you. Most of the questions that I get asked and answer here aren't really complete. I always have a ton of extra questions that I would really need the answers to before I could give somebody an opinion, but I think they're at least helpful to point you in a general direction or at least explain to you, while giving you maybe a partial answer, why calling a local lawyer might really be to your advantage. So we're going to talk today, uh, just a few seconds, just about the effects of a uh, videos might have at a, at a hearing where one of the parties is cursing and partying. We're going to talk about um, what happens uh, an un, un, in an unpaid child support situation. We're going to talk about a relocation, uh, an emancipation question, and uh, what would happen in various other child support um, non-payment or modification scenarios. All right, our first question today comes from Orlando, where a wife wants to know if she can send videos um, that her husband, soon to be ex-husband, has posted online. Um, she wants to know if she can send those to the judge. Um, she says the videos are um, of him partying and drinking and uh, cursing, not necessarily all in the same video. Um, I'm She's not really clear whether all of these videos are in the presence of her child that they um, apparently are um, arguing over the majority time sharing um, in front of the judge. So she wants to know if she can send these videos to the judge. Um, first of all, um, she absolutely should not send the videos to the judge. You're not just allowed to send things in. Um, it would have to be properly authenticated and admitted at a hearing um, as evidence to the extent the judge would even want to see it. Um, I think they would probably let you view or show the judge the evidence at these videos at a hearing. Um, But whether or not the judge cares about what they say, if they have the impact that I think she wants, she obviously wants the judge to think these are horrible things and almost disqualifying um, of her soon-to-be ex-husband as a parent and therefore give her the majority time-sharing. that really is up to the judge. Could a judge have that opinion? I think so. Um, they certainly could have the opinion that this is just a horrible thing, and why would you ever curse in front of your child or have a drink in front of your child um, or you know, look at pretty girls walking down the street and comment on their, their good looks? Why would you ever do that in front of your child? Um, certainly, the judge could also, I think, have the opposite opinion of so what, Um It really kind of also depends on things we don't know about. What is he actually saying? What time of the day is it? Um, You know, there's nothing wrong sitting around at five o'clock and having a beer in front of your kid. Um, But if it's three o'clock in the morning and you're doing that and your, you know, four or five year old son is still with you, that's probably not very good at all. Um, You know, you really do run the risk here of even asking the judge to look at evidence like this. is coming across as kind of petty, and that, honestly, I really think it could backfire. Again, that's really up to the judge. Um, Judges in family cases, as I think I've said before on this podcast, really have great um, discretion. They are the, what we call in 
uh, law school at least, the finders of fact, they can determine what is true, what is not true, um, and the weight to give it. They might see the video, and really the video is undisputed. I mean, if it's your husband, he can probably say that that will, yeah, sure, that's me, and that's what I said. You can see it in the video. But it's up to the judge to give it any specific weight. And honestly, different judges of, you know, maybe around different parts of the state with different upbringings, different lives, um, lifestyles themselves, um, different age, different generation might just view it differently. Um, that's why it's, and you never know, you never, as a person not representing, uh, or not having a lawyer, if you represent yourself, you don't know what you're going to get until you get into the hearing. Um, you're always assigned a judge initially, so you know who the judge is, but you don't know anything about that judge very likely. Um, that is one of the kind of, um, hidden values, I think, in hiring a local, um, attorney, um, because they know the judges, they've appeared for them before and they might tell you, Hey, if you would have gotten this other judge in a different division, um, it, it, it would be a problem for your soon to be ex-husband. But the way it works out, you have a different judge who from their experience just knows that it's not, it's, that's not something that's going to float. They're not going to um, take your argument. So at least, you know, okay, you have an idea, you floated it to your lawyer and the better, the best thing of the outcome there is, Hey, you haven't had to spend thousands of dollars to try to figure out what the judge is going to do or not do because you've hired a lawyer and they've given you their opinion. Next up, we have a question from Largo where a mother asks if she is allowed to move with her 14-year-old son to a condo that's located about 80 miles away from where she currently lives. Um, she states that the father of the child and her lived together up until September of last year um, at which time he was removed from the home due to a domestic violence injunction that I'm not really sure from her question, but it appears that she is, the injunction is still in place. Um, she says that he hasn't paid any child support since that time. It doesn't say if he's ordered to pay child support or not or under what kind of a case. Um, and it doesn't say that it, whether or not any kind of specific visitation or time-sharing schedule was set up as part of the domestic violence injunction. Um, so whether or not she can move or not really depends on what has happened so far in any various cases. If there has ever been a paternity case um, or a divorce case, but they weren't married, um, if there's ever been any kind of order establishing a parenting plan. And a parenting plan is going to result from a from a divorce case or a paternity case where the court says, you know, child lives here, child visits there, um, what happens on holidays, you know, the nights and weekends, establishes some kind of time-sharing schedule. If that has never been done or is not in the process of being done, so there might not be one yet, but a case is pending, if either one of those two has happened, um, then you have to ask for court permission uh, to move more than 50 miles away. And that's 50 miles, you know, like in a straight line distance, not on the roads. Um, probably would make a difference down in Largo. Probably makes a lot of differences. Um, you have to worry about the straight line distance, not the roads. So if she, if, if none of these kinds of cases have ever existed, then she's free to move. And in the case where, as here, it appears that they were never married, um, she, the father doesn't have any rights to the child anyway. Um, he can have them established through a paternity case, but it doesn't look like from her question that he's ever done any of those things yet. 
Um, so she's kind of in the strange position of she almost is in a race with him to can she move um, as soon as possible um, before he figures something out or talks to a lawyer and then he files a paternity case because once he files something, then it's then she can't move without the court's permission. I think in a situation like this where uh, you know she's with a 14 year old son, there's a history of domestic violence. Um, you know, again, as I've said before, this is only one side of the story. You never, you know, in these questions, you don't get both sides. Um, but there would certainly be a fairly decent likelihood that she would be allowed to leave anyway um, and and go up to, you know, move wherever she wanted to go, even though it's 80 miles away. Um, again, I think moving farther away, if she wanted to move to California from Largo or something like that, that makes it a little more difficult. But with the factors that the judge would have to consider, it does seem like a fairly decent shot that she'd be allowed to go. But I think in uh, the better part is you certainly don't have to ask to move if you don't need to move. I mean, if, if, if you don't need to ask. Why ask if you don't have to ask? The law doesn't require you to ask. She should certainly always tell him where she's going, where she's going to be, um, so that some kind of, you know, even informal timesharing arrangement can be set up between um, the father and the child. Um, any look down the line into something like this is going to analyze what she's done um, in the future. If she didn't have to ask and she moved without telling him and didn't tell him where she was going and it took him a year or more to find where she was to serve her with some kind of paternity papers to determine a time-sharing plan, that's going to make her look pretty lousy, I think, in the judge's eyes as somebody who's obviously trying to conceal the child just because there's a history of domestic violence between the two of them. Um, she didn't say that there was any kind of domestic violence between um, him and her son. That that just because there's domestic violence between the parents doesn't mean that he forfeits his um, well obligation to pay child support and his rights to see his child. He just has rights. He just has to have them established, and apparently hasn't done that yet. From Miami, we have a question from an ex-wife and mother who states that uh, prior to her divorce hearing, her husband was voluntarily paying a specific amount. She doesn't say what amount, but he was paying a specific amount of child support and had been doing so for the few months prior to the final hearing. At the final hearing, the judge, after hearing the uh, testimony and evidence presented by the parties, um, ordered a apparently higher child support amount. Um, she doesn't say how long ago this was, but that since the time of the final hearing, he has always continued to pay what he was paying before, the amount he came up with, and he is not paying the amount that the judge ordered him to pay. So she wants to know if this continues to happen, um, what's going to happen to him? Um, basically, nothing's going to happen to him um, until she complains. Um, she doesn't say, I mean, this is a divorce case, if it was some kind of um, Department of Revenue child support case, even if it they had kind of come into a divorce case, um, then they would know that he wasn't paying. And then they would initiate the contempt proceedings. So basically what I'm going to say that she needs to do, they would know and they would do it. Um, but if they wouldn't do anything, then obviously nothing's going to happen. The judge doesn't monitor the child support um, payment schedules of litigants to see who pays, who doesn't pay, and go and set hearings for, you know, uh, they just don't do that. So what she's going to have to do is she, obviously she should hire a lawyer to handle these kind of things for her, but basically what that lawyer would need to do is um, file what's called a motion for contempt. 
um, especially if this is fairly recently after the final hearing, what seems to be the problem here is that the father makes a specific amount of money or says he does, and the judge either doesn't believe him, um, thinks he really makes more, or thinks he could be making more. So they, that's what's called the imputation of income. Just because you um, make a specific amount, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what the judge has to use. If you're not maximizing um, your income based on your knowledge and experience, education, um, then they're going to use a different amount. That happens all the time with people who um, simply work little part-time jobs. Maybe they've been staying at home with the kids for years and they're working 10, 15 hours. Well, when it comes to calculating child support, the court very often you know, imputes to them either what they're making, uh, the same hourly rate, they just extrapolate that out for 40 hours a week, um, or they use what they were recently making before they voluntarily quit a job without a good reason. Um, and it seems like in this situation that the judge used a higher amount of income for the child support calculation than either what he actually makes or what he says he makes. So that's how it results in a higher child support amount that for whatever reason, I'm sure he thinks it's not fair, um, but that's not going to be much of a help. So the problem he's going to have at the hearing, a contempt hearing, is that the judge already believes that he could be making whatever income it would take to generate that child support amount. Um, you, he's typically, any person is going to be in contempt if the judge thinks he's not paying child support and he could be paying it. Okay. Um, you're in contempt if you, you know, have a court order entered against you to, or to pay a specific amount and you voluntarily are choosing not to pay it. Just the simple non-payment isn't necessarily the contemptuous conduct. If he wasn't paying because he was in a car accident and has been in the hospital or has been on, you know, bed rest for the last few months, sure, then that's not contempt. He, he can't work. He can't make money. So he can't pay. Um, that doesn't seem to be the situation here at all. Um, so if this was a fairly recent occurrence where say, well, it's in, we're in May now, if back in March he was ordered to pay this child support amount, um, what goes, like I've already said, what goes hand in hand with that amount is the judge assumes he can make a specific amount of money. Um, if he's not, that's really not the whole question. The judge thinks you should be making that amount. So they're going to probably have the same finding at the contempt hearing where they think he has the ability to make that amount of money, therefore the ability to pay the child support that was ordered, even though everybody can agree, sure, he's working this other job, making a specific amount of money, but I think he runs the real danger that the judge already thinks he should be making more. Again, even when everybody agrees, he's not making that amount of money. Um, the typical example I like to use to explain this to clients is, if you have a high-paid doctor who has a wife and some children and is uh, getting ready to go through a divorce, whether it's something he's initiating or she's initiating, his wife's initiating, uh, he can't just quit his job and go bag groceries at, at the Publix and go from a say two, three hundred thousand a year job to making you know fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars a year simply to defeat 
any potential alimony obligation or child support obligations, or not necessarily to defeat them, but to greatly reduce them. I mean, of course, child support at $300,000 a year is a whole lot different than child support at $18,000 a year. Um, and everybody could agree. Yeah, sure, Judge. My, you know, the wife could say, "My husband, I know he's he was a doctor. He was making three hundred thousand dollars a year, and I I know he's not practicing medicine anymore. I know he's bagging groceries at the Publix." And the judge could know all that and can agree with that, and still order child support and alimony based on somebody who makes three hundred thousand dollars a year. There's no way he's going to be able to pay that kind of alimony and child support, or even if there's no alimony, he's certainly not going to be able to pay. Um, child support that's based on a $300,000 income when he's only making, I mean, probably even if he's making $100,000 a year, um, certainly if he's bagging groceries. So it's really just then a slow march for him to jail <laughs> because he's never going to be able to pay that money and the court's going to think he has the ability to do so. Um, so that would certainly be a problem for him. Now that takes a few months. So the what he really should do is after he's been ordered to pay such a higher amount, and this is what typically happens, People go mysteriously, you know, start their careers again, get an old job back, and they're back making what they really were. Um, it, it, a lot of times people will think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the smartest person and I've figured out a way to beat the system. That is almost certainly not the case. Um, the judges have really, you don't really probably have to be a family law judge for very long to have heard just about everything once or twice. Um, and certainly... That is, that's my experience, that you're not pulling much over on the judges as far as income and problems like this. All right, next up from St. Petersburg, we have an ex-wife who lives down there with her five children. Um, she's writing in and saying that her ex-husband is getting remarried to a woman um, who already has two daughters. Um, the ex-husband has mentioned to her that because he will now have her and her two daughters to support that he's going to want his child support um, lowered because of his support obligation uh, to them. Um, so she wants to know, of course, is he allowed to do this? Um, the short answer is no. Um, no, not at all. Um, again, there might be another side of the story, might be some other reasons, but just simply the fact that he's remarried um, and has n children with the new wife that are you know, actually his biological children or he sort of inherits her children to care for as a step-parent, or whether he adopts them or not, um, isn't going to have any kind, of ob or any kind of effect on her, on the, the writer, um, the question asker here, her um, amount of child support that she gets. Um, that's just simply not a basis for a child support reduction. Um, what it, what the an impact it might have um, if he does get remarried and does support these people um, it might be more difficult in the future, even though the law doesn't, the statutes don't specifically call for this. There is case law out there that would make it a little more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult for um, the mother in St. Pete with the five kids to have her child support increased in the future. So, say, for example, this husband, uh, her ex husband, does get remarried to this woman with the children, and then his career takes off and he's making, you know, whatever. He went from making eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year to one hundred forty, hundred fifty. So, in a usual circumstance, that would be a clear reason uh, for her child support obligation it could be modified upward based on his substantial, you know, increase in income that would certainly increase the child support amount in most situations. 
um, what the case law allows for is the court to deviate from, say, the new guideline calculation based on his obligation for these um, for his wife and these new children that you know he's living with. Or I, I, I don't even think it has anything to do with its her his stepchildren. They would it would almost have to be I think children new children that he had um, with his with his wife um, with his new wife, and that would probably include if he had adopted these two daughters. Um, so what it allows the judge to do is it's, the guidelines would then essentially be a ceiling for the amount of uh, modification, an upward modification, and then they would deviate a little lower. So you'd get somewhere between the current amount and the new guideline amount. That would be where the court would establish it. And, and in that kind of a situation, that would sort of be a defense. His subsequent children would be a defense to her her request for a modif- an increase in the child support. Um, so that would also then come into play. Uh, her the the new wife's income would then factor into it. Where in most child support cases, um, her income would not would not matter. The new wife's income doesn't matter at all. If it's simply a case where the husband gets remarried, there's no other children are impacted here. Um, and it just so happens that the the new wife is a multimillionaire, has a great job, is making a ton of money, and the husband's living, you know, high on the hog wherever they live, and living a great, you know, exciting, wealthy lifestyle. And I, rightfully, that would frustrate the mother who wants to provide more for her children. But the the, the new wife's income um, doesn't have an impact. It's not. It's her money. It's her income, um, or her savings, or her investments, whatever. It's not really her husband's, so that wouldn't really have any impact on the question, the questioner's uh, child support obligation that she would get from her husband. I know that's a little confusing. I think this is all kind of fairly well known, at least among the family law lawyers. So if um, you have a similar situation, give give a local family law attorney a call. They can explain these kinds of things to you. The judges typically, I mean, they're going to follow the law. And the reason the law is developed that way is they want you to be able to know. He knows he has a child support obligation to these five children. If he wants to, knowing what he has to pay and knowing what he earns, if he wants to structure his life um, so that he can get remarried and support other people, that's fine. That's his call. The judge is certainly not going to forbid anyone from getting remarried and, and, and helping other people out. But he still has to pay his child support obligation. You're not going to get that lessened just because you've chosen to have more children or care for people that already have children. Um, Like I said, it might make it a little more difficult to have that child support increased, but he should be able to budget for those things. If he's just carelessly, you know, having a bunch of children with various women, that's going to, I mean, that's going to end up being their problem. Um, the new women with the new children, um, when they try to get child support out of them, they're going to get a whole lot less than the first woman's going to get. Um, and she has five, so she's probably getting a big chunk of his uh, income as child support anyway. Lastly, today we have a question from a young woman in Daytona Beach who states that she is 17 years old and just recently got married and wants to know... Um, how she goes about getting emancipated and about how long the process takes. Well, the good news for her is since she's 17 and married, married being the important um, term here, she is emancipated. It's automatic. 
um, the Florida statutes in chapter 743.01 um, really simply states that if you're a minor and you get married, and there probably are other statutes, I just can't recall them off the top of my head, which state how young you have to be. I don't think like a 12-year-old can get married, obviously. But at 17, you can get married, and doing so automatically makes you an adult. So she doesn't have to wait at all. She's already emancipated and didn't even know it. So good news for her. Um, generally, though, the emancipation process, uh, you've got to file a petition in court, have a hearing. The judge has to make certain findings, and hopefully, if you've met all the conditions, um, they'll enter an order essentially stating that you're now uh, an adult. It's called the disability of non-age. That is what, um, it's the disability of age, of being a minor, that restricts you from doing various things, filing lawsuits, being sued, being responsible for debts, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But when those disabilities are removed, you're essentially an adult. Um, What goes into your petition for emancipation can be found at... um, in the same chapter, chapter 743.015, um, re- you can read them if you're interested. It There lists six or seven different kind of things that have to go into a petition. Um, the, the most important, I think, thing that the judge is going to want to hear at the hearing is how the child, the 16, even generally there are 15, 16, 17-year-olds doing this, not four or five-year-olds, um, how they're going to provide for themselves. So it could be that they've got a boyfriend that's a year or two older, um, that they have a family friend that is helping them out. You know, how are you going to stay in school? How are you going to pay for your car, pay for insurance, pay for gas to the extent those things are even needed? How are you going to pay for your food? How are you going to contribute? Or or, or if it's not um, required, how are you going to pay for your room, um, your your house, your apartment, whatever? How are those things going to be done? Um, and that really, I've gotten some calls of the year about emancipation, and that's usually the big one. Everybody thinks they've got a plan on how these things can go. Um, but really, when push comes to shove and you've got to write these things down, it gets a little more difficult to consider. Um, and I don't think a judge is just going to trust um, – Certainly not a child like the you know a fifteen sixteen seventeen year old that they just certainly want to do it and it really might not be a terrible idea but you've got to have a plausible plan not just a plan but a plausible plan where you can convince a judge that this really is the best thing for um, the child to have the disability of non age removed so usually that is the result of some kind of um, obviously disagreement with the parents. It could be abuse or something like that. Um, but there are other systems set up with the Department of Children and Families, for example, um, to help those kind of children out. There are certainly um, programs to be involved in in foster care. Um, but this must be, uh, they really will reserve this for kids who really have a plan on what to do and how they can you know, get on with the rest of their life by start, at least being started to be treated as an adult. And that's all I have for this episode. Again, I'm Jim Mullaney, and I practice in and around Jacksonville. If you have any questions that you would like answered on this podcast, you can submit them through my website uh, or email them to me. The address of the website and my email address are in the show notes. Um, My address is 4741 Atlantic Boulevard, Suite A1, Jacksonville, Florida, 32207. My phone number is 904-858-4334. 
So you can find me also on Twitter at at Jack's Divorce, A-T-T-Y. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. 